This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zen nicotine pouches deliver nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime, which means Zen pairs well with you, your personality, your schedule, and your spontaneity. Zen fits easily into your bag, pocket, and into your life because it's smoke-free, hands-free, and hassle-free. So the only person who will know you have a Zen pouch in is you. Visit Zen.com or head to your local convenience store today to find your Zen. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. Hello, my friends. Coming to you a little bit different today. I'm actually in a hotel room in Los Angeles getting ready to do an episode of Dr. Phil. We need to talk about the affidavit today. Talk about some of the forensic aspects here. Talk about what the police might be looking for, what they might have, and what is yet to be uncovered. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Guys, I have been on more media outlets than I can count uh, over the past, I don't know, six weeks. I am so incredibly grateful that I have got my friend, who I consider one of my best friends in the world, Jackie Howard, the executive producer for Nancy Grace's Crime Stories. Jackie is joining me right now. Uh, She's in her studio. I'm here in L.A. Uh, Jackie. Wow, do we have a lot of information to go through. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I actually thought that we would get this much out of this 19-page document that dropped, but it landed in our laps. And boy, is it is it really causing a lot of people to stop and think and reconsider a lot of positions. I think it's something that you and I should have a chat about today. What do you think? Well, I think that you started out with some wonderful brownie points there, Joe, so thanks. <laughs> but yes, there's a lot of information to unfold. The first thing I want to talk about, though, is how much do you think that the police learned that was not included in what was released? Well, I, I think you have to start off at the baseline. You know, they, they only require as much as is needed to get this thing before a judge to draw up an arrest warrant. Okay, so they're they're not they are not revealing everything that they have. Trust me, this is only the tip of the iceberg. And boy, 
what a volume of, of information that they have presented us with. We, we've got everything from DNA. We've got, uh, we've got pings uh, relative to the movement of Brian Koberger and his cell phone. Uh, we've got CCTV footage. It, the list goes on and on. We, we've got trace evidence. You know, when you think about footprints and all of these sorts of things that have, uh, that have come to light. And probably, for me, what is uh, most defining is we've got a sheath. Jackie, we've got a knife sheath. If memory serves me right, you called that saying, if they can find that sheath, they're set with DNA. And you obviously were right. So the DNA that was found was found one spot on that knife sheath. It was a K-bar, as we know, I've been talking about for quite some time now. But the sheath DNA was found in one spot. On the clip, the snap clip. I'm wondering, do we know where that DNA came from? Was it blood DNA or is it just skin cell DNA? Uh, hard to say. It, it truly is hard to say. And we don't have enough information. We do know that there is a specific linkage to the suspect. And that that's important, at least at this juncture. We will find out more what the sourcing of that DNA is. There are many people that have openly opined that this is probably going to be touch DNA. And we've talked about touch DNA before on body bags, but just kind of revisit this very, very briefly. We slough thousands and thousands of skin cells. And the reason you slough them is that they're dead. And so the, the DNA strand or that it's just a partial of a strand that's contained within what's referred to as touch DNA. So when you you find that bit of DNA, uh, you have to go back in the lab and kind of reconstruct the DNA. But it, it was sufficient enough to the task that when they did recover the DNA, they were able to develop a profile that eventually you know, within, I don't know, 99.9998, I think, percentage yes. points is likely yes. him. Uh, and that that's big. But yeah, that, that, that gives us an idea that he actually had contact. He had physical contact with a sheath. Some people say, ah, well, you know, it doesn't matter. That, that could come from anywhere. Okay. That's fine. Yeah, I'll give you that. It could. It could. He could have picked it up. I've heard some people say he could have picked it up at a knife and gun show and just handle the thing. And they're calling it a button snap is actually what they're calling it. And he maybe he actuated the button snap, flicking it back and forth, just see it. Okay. That's a starting spot. That's not the ending spot. Okay. And that's important here. Well, that was my question. Because let me, let me jump in on Go you. Ahead. That was my question. If this knife sheath belonged to Brian Koberger, wouldn't they have found his DNA on more spots than just that clip? Possibly. But could he have worn gloves and taken those gloves off? Or could he have manipulated that knife sheath prior to putting gloves on, wiped down the rest of the knife sheath, but forgot to wipe off that specific area. Do you see? There's so many, there's so many possibilities here that we don't know the dynamic of it. We don't know how much he's handled this thing. We don't know if the sheath is new, if this is something he just went out and 
picked up and bought? Why isn't there other people's DNA on the scene? Maybe there are unknowns on here. We never know at this point because they haven't given us that information. You know, you have to figure if he, let's just say he went to a stall at a gun show and he bought this from somebody. Well, just think about the person that was selling it to him had to handle the thing and would have handed it over to him, would have manipulated it in some way. Well, they don't say anything about unknowns that might be on the exterior of the sheath. They only talk about that one linkage that goes back to the accused. That I think that that's significant here. And again, we don't know what the sourcing of the DNA is. You know, we I'd mentioned touch DNA. You know, you, you can get DNA that derives from you know a multiple multiple sources. You know, we can have sweat. You can get saliva. You can get blood. Uh, among other things, you know, that, that uh, emanate from our body, essentially. Um, and, and so we don't know specifically what the source is at this particular time. Uh, and I think uh, another big question is, is it possible that there might be blood on the sheath? Is it possible? Yeah, that it, it is possible that there could be blood. And it might not necessarily be his blood, the accused. It might be the victim's blood. Because it was laying there in the bed. It wasn't laying on the floor, according to what they're saying. It was laying there in the bed. So that that's kind of interesting as well. Uh, was there any other kind of transfer evidence that was found on that sheath from any of the victims in the bed? No hair. Uh, any kind of body fluids from them, including blood. Anything that might be linkage to tie that back. It's not just one person that you're considering when you're looking at unknown sample. You consider everybody that's kind of in the orbit of, of this environment at this particular time. And all of these are going to be key. They will develop profiles on all of these people uh, moving forward. They're also going to talk about anybody that may have handled this sheath prior to uh, Koberger having purchased it, if it was a recent purchase, for instance. Um, and they will develop those as well. If they find those unknown sources, and they'll try to track those down as well. Again, what's the beauty of this, Jackie, is the fact that if you have all of these other people that have touched it, it's not just a matter of him physically touching the knife and it being there at the scene. If you have unknown DNA that you can tie back to other people that are in his peripheral past, you can kind of track the movement of that knife through time. You know, if he went to purchase this thing, um, you know, you can find it. Uh, famously, you know, there's there's been a number of cases, for instance, involving sexual assault, where there be a pair of underwear, and you will actually find touch DNA on the surface of a package of a previously packaged pair of underwear that was packaged in maybe Southeast Asia somewhere, and you'll find somebody's DNA on it that handled it in a factory. Just let that sink in just for a second. So the possibilities here are kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. What is the volume of DNA that we're talking about here, and how much would have been needed to match up with the evidence taken from his Pennsylvania home? Well, I, I think that uh, that that evidence from the Pennsylvania home is probably going to be very rich. Uh, if, if you consider that, uh, let's just think about it. If you're talking about napkins, if you're talking about like cups that he may have placed to his lips, 
you know, anything that would be in intimate contact with him. And when you think about a trash bag and how we discard things, you know, in trash bags, we're throwing stuff away and it's all kind of getting jumbled up in there. Uh, there will be quite a number of things that will come back to him. Certainly, certainly there will be things in there that will come back to his familial grouping. And again, that's significant, right? If you can tie that one bit of DNA that they found uh, on this button snap back to this home <laughs> all the way over 2,000 miles away in Pennsylvania in the Poconos, well, that's 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 a that's a big piece of circumstantial slash physical evidence that you have there. If you're going to move forward with this and go to court with it, you know how 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 can you explain that away? And it's it's very very difficult. But my question is, given the amount of DNA that we are led to believe they they pulled off of this sheath, it seems to be very very small. So does that matter? I mean, is that going to give well, obviously it did, but is that going to give um, forensic investigators enough to say with, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that they matched? Oh, yeah, it's, it's certainly more than enough. We're, we're, we're talking, you know, at a molecular level here. That's how strong the connectivity is. So it takes very little. It takes very, very little, Jackie. Very, very little. And, you know, let's think about it. you're already OK. We're already kind of a bit behind the eight ball with touch DNA because it's not a complete strand because, you know, like I said, it's coming from a dead skin cell. It's sloughing off, assuming that that, that it is touch DNA. Of course it could be, you know, a number of other things as well. We don't have enough information right now, but it, it does not require a tremendous amount of sample in order to work back through this for these DNA scientists who are just, incredibly brilliant and the technology they have at their disposal uh it's uh it's daunting when you're staring down the barrel of this as a defense team the father of kaylee gonzalez has mentioned that his daughter's wounds were different than the other victims saying that she had gouges in her body i'm curious whether or not we would be likely to see defensive wounds on either person that could be definitively defined as they were trying to defend the other person. Well, well, yeah. And okay, here, here's, here's something that you have to consider at this point. We don't know what position Maddie and Kaylee were actually in, in this bed. We know that they were in the bed together. And to your point, you know, was, was one huddled over the other in a defensive posture Attempting to defend against any kind of strikes by the accused uh, is that is that what we're talking about, or were they both lying in what would be considered quote unquote a normal sleeping posture, you know, face up, face down, or on their sides? You had mentioned earlier that it's it's really hard, I think, for many of us to even think that a stabbing could have taken place without one person having been aware of it. You know, how, how do you get past that? You know, because this is not like a gunshot wound where uh, it's sudden and you might have, I don't know, uh, a pretty quick death. Um, there would have been pain associated with it. There would have been an awareness at a very primal level. You know, you would think that a scream would have emanated a reaction of some kind. I think that it would be speculative at best 
uh, for forensic pathologists to be able to get up on the stand and say, yeah, this person was defending the other person from, you know, uh, an aggressor based upon the examination of the wounds. And again, these comments that the father is making, um, I, I have a, uh, a difficult time kind of measuring out how much information he knows about the injuries on the other victims. Has he spoken with family members of other victims and they've described injuries to him and he's been able to kind of compare and contrast, if you will, that that's, that's, that's very interesting that he can make that statement, you know, and he uses the term gouges and that's not something that's generally associated with, um, forensic pathology. Um, so that that's not something that a, a a forensic pathologist or a trained coroner would say. We would not say, well, they have gouge marks on them. Now, I think a broader a broader thought here is: was he able to see her remains at the funeral home? And if that's the case, he could be assessing this in his own in his own way. I think famously, you know, he, he made one of the early initial comments. When uh, he was uh, giving a, a press conference, he alluded to this interesting construct where he said, I paid for that. I paid for that. And I, I didn't know what he meant by that. I didn't know. Was he talking about the funeral? Was he talking about the funeral? Did he go to the funeral home prior to his daughter's body being prepared and he saw the remains. So I don't know, I don't know where this is kind of bubbling up from. And, um, I, I would, I think I'd be interested in seeing what the actual forensic pathologist has to say about this case and about everything that's connected to it in order to, you know, kind of assess these injuries because look, I mean, he's a dad, he's going to be very, very emotional over this. And I don't know what he is saying and what context he's saying this in. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of Melon Leaf stem cell technology. It's Melon Leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. At the scene of a death, anything, and I mean anything that is, particularly an indoor scene, anything that is in that residence, in that structure, has value. Because you, you just never know. You, you never know where the road is going to lead from an evidentiary standpoint. With that said, I would argue, I would argue that perhaps aside from the evidence that the bodies contain one of the most important things, one of the most important things here are the mattresses that these bodies were found upon. Because you're, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn so much from the surfaces of these mattresses. You're going to learn so much from perhaps the interior of these mattresses. It's, uh, it is what we would term an evidence-rich environment. Well, I had a big light bulb go off over my head, Joe, as we all watched as investigators removed those mattresses from the home. Those mattresses, it looked like they were inside, I don't, I would have, I guess, a huge evidence bag or a mattress bag or something, but they were loaded into the back of a pickup truck. And the first thing that went through my head was, that's not how Joe Scott would do it. Hmm. Am I right? Yes, you're absolutely right. And this goes back to valuable, sentimental objects that were released from the scene already. You know, so <laughs> you're releasing these items from the scene that, quote unquote, have sentimental value. Whatever that means. I have no idea what that means. Okay, but yet you're going to keep these mattresses within the environment and having not secured them to the point where you're going to remove them to be analyzed, because here, this is the key, pay very close attention, to be analyzed at the lab. You're going to leave them in there. I, I don't, I don't understand that. Uh, most of the time when you're talking about mattresses that are involved in uh, homicides like this that are arguably blood-soaked, all right, contained a tremendous amount of physical evidence. That's going out the door to the crime lab, like, immediately, like that night. You're going to make arrangements. They're going to be taken away. And, yeah, um, I saw it, and my jaw hit the floor. 
when I was I was looking, I was thinking, wait, <laughs> am I am I actually seeing this? When I saw the footage of a mattress being placed into the back of a pickup truck, and granted, it appears to be in it's enveloped in something, all right, in some kind of uh, of you know container of some type, a pouch, if you will. To get it to the crime lab, but you're going to put it in the back of a pickup truck. That's that's what we're doing now. You're not going to have a van. You're not going to have some other resource that you can place this thing in where it's protected from the elements completely and transport it to the lab at that point. I, I don't understand the rationale behind that because the mattresses have fragile evidence on them. You know, obviously we're talking about DNA, but we're also talking about things like hair and fiber. And we're also talking about the potential for tool marks. So what do you mean by that? Well, let's just say that these mattresses were the surface that the victims were lying upon. If the the perpetrator did not land the knife strike on the body and missed, and it went into the mattress, then now you're transferring whatever was on the surface of that knife to the interior of the mattress. So now you're getting down into the substrate of the mattress. So you, you've got this very dynamic environment that these attacks are occurring in. One of the biggest areas for evidence capture is going to be on the surface of this mattress and potentially the interior of this mattress. So I, I, I was left, you know, kind of with my mouth open, you know, really, really trying to understand what their purpose was in removing them so late and after the fact. Well, in looking at the news coverage, the mattresses were not removed until about a month after the last time the investigators were last seen taking items out of the home. For that reason... And then questioning them, how they moved them. Obviously, some of these investigators are seasoned investigators. So I'm sure that there was a plan. So how do you think with what they encased those mattresses in, how were they hermetically sealed to make sure that nothing got in? I'm not necessarily worried about as much getting out as I am of whatever is in there being contaminated. I think we need to worry about both things, uh, both aspects to this. We do need to worry about things certainly getting in, as you stated, Jack. Uh, anything from externally that could find its way inside of this pouch uh, that might be outside of what you would expect to find in the pristine interior protected scene. All right. When you hit that door. Have you got this thing secured to the point where anything on the outside is not going to find its way? You know, because the environment that you're exiting is reasonably protected, you know, within the apartment or the house as it is. Uh, but then you go into an outdoor environment with this thing uh, and you have to make sure that it is secured. Now, to the other point here, losing things Um if if it's a if it's a blood stain, for instance, and it has saturated into the mattress, there's a high possibility that you're going to be able to you know protect that to a great degree from you know wind and rain because you've got this this covering on it. 
Um, I'm really worried about fragile evidence, certainly like touch, which is if you think about uh, touch DNA being the consistency of uh, 10 times more fragile than, say, for instance, talcum powder, that dainty uh, and gracile, it can actually, you know, kind of blow away. Also to be considered are hair and fiber, which, you know, any of us know, you know, that have dogs or have uh uh, maybe we've, we're finding hair on ourselves. Anything that's fragile, it can either attach itself to us or it can be blown away. And that would be a consideration as well. You don't want to lose anything that you may have captured up there in the scene. I hope that, that they had these, these pouches secured on those mattresses before they brought them down the stairs. All of this is not as concerning to me, though, as the amount of time it's taken and then the conveyance in which they chose to do this with. And it goes more to the way the lawyers are going to look at this, and particularly the defense team, because they're going to take that that videography that you and I both saw, and at trial, they'll they'll run that. They'll run that on the screen. And remember, they don't have to prove anything. They just have to kind of implant that doubt in their minds. You know, and anybody up in this region that's ever ridden around a a pickup truck, they've been in the bed of a pickup truck, they know the wind blows. Anybody that's ever moved, period, moved. (laughs) Yeah, anybody. And driving down the interstate, you see mattresses and furniture on the side of the road. I mean, that was all I could think of, truly, well, almost all I can think of was Holy cow, I hope they have strapped those things down really well. Yeah, I, I do too. And, you know, just the, the physical security of the items themselves, it, it's it's an odd thing, isn't it? Because, you know, most of the time when you're watching videography outside of crime scenes and you see the you see the technicians walking out of the door, they're generally carrying bags. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you, you think about all the time, the Thousands and thousands of hours of footage that we've seen, stuff that I've seen in real time being out on scenes. You think about, you know, uh, paper bags that are sealed. You can see the evidence tape. These things are sealed with. And, of course, there's other types of of packaging that you can use. And then it kind of goes into the back of a van and it disappears, right? Mm -hmm. It, It just vanishes. That's not what happened with this. It comes out of out of the house and is then planted in the back of a pickup truck. And it. It gives you pause. It certainly does. And uh, I'm just hoping that they haven't lost anything here. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melody. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. People have asked me, how would you describe the forensics in this case? The, the one word that kind of sums it up for me is dense. There's so much. <laughs> There's so much on so many levels that it's hard, you know, just to kind of sit here and wade through it all. But there's certain things that we can consider. And not, not everything's been revealed yet, Jackie. One of the things that I've learned from you is how you can prove that a certain gun caused a certain wound. How are you going to do that with a knife, especially a knife you've not found? Great question. And let's, let, let's, let's look at what we do have. What we do have is a sheath, okay, which I think is a monumental piece of evidence. And it's going to play in court when this thing finally goes to trial. But along with that sheath, you get at least the beginnings of an identification. That is provided that the knife that was carried in that sheath is the same type of knife that would have come with the sheath, okay? Because you can't have a sheath and carry a different type of knife in it. That's certainly something that must be considered, all right? So to begin with, what will happen is that the authorities, the investigators, will contact will contact the company that manufactures this knife, in particular, specifically K-Bar, right? And it, if I remember correctly, on the exterior of the sheath, it is stamped with USMC. It's got the, uh, the Marine Corps emblem on it, okay? And that is an identifier for that particular knife. There's probably somewhere on there a serial number. So they'll contact the manufacturer and they'll say, hey, look, uh, we're working this case. We need to get what are referred to as, uh, as knowns or exemplars of this knife. So they'll ask for, you know, maybe two of these knives to come from the factory. And they'll get the sheath and they'll get the knife itself. All right. And this is something that they're going to hang on to. Now, what they can do is that they can actually take a look at the injuries, at the injuries that these 
kid sustained. And the forensic pathologist will look at the knife and come up with a conclusion as to whether or not this particular type of knife can generate this injury. Now, if you want to take it a step further, if there are any marks on any of the skeletal bodies within these remains, and I'm talking about ribs, sternum, spine, collarbone, any of these areas, there is a potential that the samples of these injured areas have been retained. This happens with great frequency at autopsy. So you, if there's um, what's referred to as an insulted piece of bone, that piece of bone would be removed from the body and it would be retained by the crime lab or by the ME. And once you get that knife or a knife similar to that, you will ask a tool mark expert with, at the crime lab, maybe at the state crime lab, maybe with the FBI, to do a comparison. Give, you, give us an idea. What's your opinion here? Looking at this microscopically, at this injury on the bone, can you look at this knife and say that this knife generated this injury? And they, they might can, you know, they'll, they'll come up with an opinion about it. You know, and a lot goes into it. You can talk about the shape of the blade along the long axis. Uh, all of these blades are unique to the manufacturer. Those are things that they will explore. Now, we don't have the actual knife to compare at this time. Not saying it's not going to make an appearance. But in my experience with knife injuries, uh, it's, it's important to consider that dependent upon the quality of the blade and the metal and the way it's forged is created. Um, this, this type of blade might chip, okay? It might chip, and if it chips, many times it'll chip within the body, uh, particularly if it's striking bony areas. You say, well, what, what can you do with that? Well, before an autopsy is conducted, one of the things that is done is you do what is called an AP and a lateral x-ray of the body. AP means if you anybody that's listening, you've been to the doc's office and they make you stand uh, to get a chest x-ray and they make you stand and put your shoulders to the, to the wall. Um, they're taking a chest x-ray. That's an AP. That's kind of an overall view from that perspective. And then they do a lateral. You know, when you're in the x-ray room, they make you turn and profile and they shoot you from that perspective. Well, that's a lateral. And so what do you do with those two two x-rays. Well, you look at them before you do the autopsy and you say, okay, anatomically, if I'm looking at, at, this, uh, at this image and I see a little metal storm right here, it might be just to the right of the midline, maybe adjacent to, uh, to the left upper lobe of the left lung. Okay. Then you flip it and you look at the lateral perspective and you can get an idea of depth. So you're not going in blind. The key is can you can you find can you find that metallic body and retrieve it and if you can if you can there's an off chance that you can submit that to the crime lab and they could do a metallurgical analysis on that and very in very simple terms what that means is that that item has a specific chemical signature that is unique to that manufacturer. 
you know, how that blade is forged, uh, if it is an amalgam of various different types of metal, you know, how are they folded in and all those sorts of things. And that's, that's kind of a chemical signature. Uh, additionally, what happens with knife wounds, and again, we don't have the knife and we don't know at this point, but many times with sharp force injuries, um, the tip of the knife, the very point of it will actually break off. And it will lodge. It will lodge in the body. I've seen this happen any number of times. And most of the time, it goes back to the structural integrity of the knife as it applies to the quality of the manufacturer, you know, how they make these things. And secondly, the age of the blade. You know, how old is this blade? And then how much stress has the blade been put under? Well, let's think about what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about four victims, Jackie. Four. All right. This knife, I think, just from a structural standpoint, has has been involved in very in a very intense, um, a very intense attack. So the more and more these victims are stabbed, it would stand to reason that the structural integrity of the blade could begin to break down. People don't think about, you know, every time you use a blade say, in your kitchen, to cut something with, that blade, even though you may have just sharpened it, is not as sharp as it was before you used it. And you keep that progression up without sharpening the blade, it blunts the blade. And as the blade gets blunted and you're still using the same amount of force, you put stress on those edges and it can begin to break down. It'll chip. It'll chip. And sometimes those tips will break off. I just hope that they did full body x-rays prior to doing the autopsy. Let's see if for once I know more than you do, Joe. Not likely, but let's see. Oh, come on. Do now. you know where the name K Bar came from? Uh I do not. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Uh, I do <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. You All go right, ahead. Let me let me <laughs> enjoy this moment. So the name K Bar came from the company that manufactured these knives was Union Cutlery. And the name K-Bar reportedly is derived from a story of a man who went toe-to-toe with a bear. His rifle didn't kill it, didn't inflict enough damage, and he went hand-to-hand and finished off the bear with his knife from Union Cutlery. Hence the name K-A-Bar came from Kill a Bear. Wow. I, I had no idea. Plus, you're originally from East Tennessee, so you guys would pronounce bar like that, bear like that, right? So that, good, co- <laughs> yeah, good country folks would have said bar. Well, that's that's actually kind of fascinating. I had to know, yeah. so I went and I went and looked it up, and this is coming from I'm getting this from the website exquisiteknives.com. Well, you know, so I, I would believe that it's probably I, true. I do know that our Marines and our sailors, and actually our uh, Coasties have carried K-bars for a long time. Of course, yes. the, the sailors and the Coasties yes. have a different utility for them. They'll, you know, do work on decks and that sort of thing, cut rope and, and you know, and do maintenance. Of course, Marine Corps, we know what the Marine Corps likes to use their K-bars for. Yeah. And so it's a, and that's who it's most closely associated with, I think. One last thing that I want to get your take on is yeah. the footprint that was left outside the surviving roommate's door. Yeah. What's that going to give us? 
a lot <laughs> and not not many people are talking about it i haven't really talked about it a lot but i think that it's significant and i'm i'm kind of unclear based upon the the affidavit because they used they used an agent uh amito blue that is wait said that again amito blue okay and it is it's used it it's a it binds with protein and it binds with protein in blood and so you'll use it to lift latent prints with all right or to let's say not lift let's say document latent prints now latent prints can either be hand prints palm prints but it can actually also be footprints and in this case that's how they recognize this. They were applying this agent to the floor, and they came up with this analysis from the scene, and they established that this this print, this print was not only did they say what the print was as far as the shape, they used the term diamond, I think. Jackie, they came back with the manufacturer, and this is. Um, it's a van, um, and for those that don't Which know, it's a skater shoe. It is a skater shoe. For those that are not familiar, if you're familiar with the movie uh, Fast Fast Times at Ridgemont High, there's a famous scene where Sean Penn takes a pair of Vans and he takes it and he slaps himself in the skull with it and says, "Hey, you know what that is? That's my skull." And if you reflect, that's a pair of Vans. That's what those are. They just kind of slip on. They look like deck shoes, really, but they're they're mm-hmm. used for for skating. Well, because why is they it, have why is good it, grip on the bottom. They do. And but why is that significant? Well, it's significant. You know, we talk a lot about DNA and you know the trace evidence, but you know when you you get these manufacturer connections as well. One of the questions I think that's real important, and I know that these guys are doing their due diligence and asking these questions, very simply put, did the suspect own a pair of vans? That seems very simplistic, but you've got to start somewhere, right? Well, if he owned a pair of vans, did he own this type of pair of vans where it has this particular pattern? And also, I don't know how uh, robust this print was that they had raised, but here's a very interesting aspect. If it was significant enough, that print that was left behind, you might could tell something about the wear pattern. And when I say wear pattern, I'm talking about maybe how old the shoes were. Was it was it kind of a faint kind of print? Was it something that looks like it was generated from something that was worn down? Think about a pencil with an eraser. You know how the eraser on a brand new pencil will look, you know, like it'll have all the little curves on it. It'll be perfectly round on Lopsided. the top. Lopsided. But yeah, after you use it for a while, you wear, you wear it down. It has a completely different appearance to it. It's the same thing. And also, another thing that you can analyze here is, um, is perhaps if this... How they step? Do they pronate? Do they supinate? You know what? Do they, what does that mean? Do they heel strike? Well, it all depends on. Do they flex their feet in? Do they walk kind of on the arch of their foot? Pigeon toe. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, some people used to use the term not need. You know, you roll your feet in and you strike on the inner the inner portion of your foot, or do you you do you uh, say list more to the outer edges of your foot, or kind of roll your feet out when you walk? And then, how are you a heel striker or are you a toe striker? 
when you're walking? Or do you just shuffle? Do you like plant your feet, you know, straight up and down, almost like a piston? And, you know, these people that do this, the shoe analysis are amazing people and they don't get a lot of credit because it's a very, it's a very fine science. There's a bit of art involved in it too, but that footprint is very significant, at least to my way of thinking. And I'd, I'd have to ask if they raise the print with something, this agent that binds with the proteins in blood, are we left to believe that this is a bloody shoe print? I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's crime stories possible. It's Lisa Mattress, a collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The natural hybrid is made from natural latex, natural wool, and environmentally safe foams. The natural hybrid elevates your sleep and supports. Go to lisa.com forward slash nancy to learn more. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash nancy.